Well, I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that when it comes to relationships, one of the worst things that can happen is for one of the, the persons in the relationship to give the other the silent treatment. You ever experienced the silent treatment? We have a few here who maybe experienced that. So let's say, for instance, it's a husband that said something at a party that he probably shouldn't have said about his wife. And he gets in the car and he has grossly offended her, but she doesn't tell him. She just gets real quiet. And he's driving down the road and she's silent. And when he's trying to make conversation, it's just yes, no, it's just really short. Gets to the house, it's the same way, very quiet. And finally, he musters up the courage to go to her and ask, honey, are you mad at me? And rather than just give him the yes, she instead folds her arms and says, I don't know, should I be? And it's just this constant game that's being played almost. Now, I can say in almost 14 years of marriage that it's been very rare that my wife has done that to me. But one person that would do that often, especially when I was growing up, was my dad. And it wasn't poor parenting. It was simply I would disobey my dad or I'd try to cover something up where he wouldn't hear about it. He'd find out. And when I would get into the truck, rather than say anything, he'd say nothing at all. And I could just hear the deafening of that silence. I could hear his breathing as he was frustrated, no doubt. And we would get to our house, and right when we pull up, he'd say, go to the room, I'll be there in a minute. And I knew what that meant. Sometimes the silent treatment was worse than the punishment itself. There was just this overwhelming sense of fear. Maybe you haven't experienced a silent treatment. Maybe you just don't like silence. Silence can be awkward, Especially if you're meeting someone for the first time. I, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't like silence, especially with someone that I'm talking to that's new. If I'm trying to muster up something to, 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 to talk about, I'm trying to find some sort of conversation because I don't want there to be that 45 seconds where there's a standoff where we're just looking at one another. It's uncomfortable. Silence can be uncomfortable. Maybe it's uncomfortable because the moment that you break the silence, you know that you're going to be faced with the reality that you live in. Maybe you don't want to be quiet because if you go quiet, you'll be faced with all your anxiety, all of your fear. Maybe you don't want to be silent because you'll be faced with your sin. And so you constantly grab that phone and you look to social media and you watch the TikTok videos or you go to your car and you turn on the radio because you don't want there to be silence. Over the past month, we have been walking through the gospel of Luke. And what's interesting about the setting as we start out is Israel finds itself in a period of silence. But it's not silence from a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's not silence from a parent. Instead, they are actually experiencing the silence of God for over 400 years. For 400 years, God remained quiet. No new miracles, no new revelation. And all the while, the people of God are crying out for him to just say something, to send the Messiah who would deliver them from the grip of their enemies. They're longing for the silence to be broken. And as we come to the gospel of Luke, what we discover is that the silence is about to break. We're introduced to this priest by the name of Zechariah. Luke tells us that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are blameless before the Lord. They are righteous. They love the law. 
They have, of course, like the rest of Israel, been praying for God to respond. And on one particular occasion, Zechariah is given the opportunity, as his name is drawn, to actually enter into the temple and burn incense for the people of Israel. The understanding of the incense was this represents the prayers of the people. Again, God, just say something. And so Zechariah enters into the temple, and rather than simply just light the incense, he notices almost immediately that God is no longer silent. He's introduced to this angel by the name of Gabriel, who stands in the very presence of God. And Gabriel says to him, the Lord has heard, the Lord has not been distant, and you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. This child is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This child is going to be the greatest prophet to ever walk the earth. And rather than this be a time of celebration, rather than it be a time of of joyful expectation of what's to come, instead it is filled with doubt. Zechariah looks to Gabriel, the one who has looked at the very face of God and says, are you sure? Just riddled with doubt. How could this happen? I'm way, way too old to be able to raise a child. My wife is way past child-rearing years. How could we actually be able to give birth to a child? And insulted by this, Gabriel says, you know, the Lord was silent for 400 years. Now you're going to be silent for nine months. Riddled with doubt. You're going to lose all effectiveness of your ministry, all effectiveness for the gospel. You are not going to be able to say a thing for nine months. Imagine this. Verse 22 of chapter 1 tells us that he's mute. So most scholars would say he's not only unable to speak, he actually cannot hear. So he is both silent and deaf. So for nine months, he can't hear or say anything. He can't hear his wife cry out in joy because she's finally expecting a child. He cannot hear the conversation that is had, as we looked at last week, where Mary enters into his house with Elizabeth. And I'm sure Elizabeth is relieved. She finally gets to talk to someone. And Mary is just bringing forth joy as she is with child. But this child is the Messiah. And here's Elizabeth with child. And this child is the forerunner to the Messiah. And he can hear nothing. He can say nothing. But then we come to our text. And after a long, nine, quiet months, Zechariah is finally able to speak. But this time, his words will not be filled with doubt. This time, it will be marked with boldness and with great faith. And this morning, that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about faith, because I'm convinced that is what Luke is trying to convey to the reader. If we were to ask ourselves, what's the main point of this text, I'm convinced that what Luke is trying to communicate is that no matter what happens in life, whether through trials, whether through great victories or setbacks, we can always have faith. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. Because God is always faithful. So as we break the text down this morning, I've sought to break it up into two sections. And the first section I want us to look at is found in verses 57 through 66. I want you to notice first, faith displayed. 
Look again at verses 57 and 58. Luke says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Now, notice a couple of things in this section. To begin with, with faith being displayed, there is this overwhelming sense of joy. But the question is, what is their joy rooted in? What, what is the, the, the primary reason for their joy? Is their joy found in the fact that Elizabeth's circumstances has changed? No. The joy is ultimately found. In, look at verse 57. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth. In other words, the time came where God proves that he always keeps his promise. And as they're rejoicing, notice what they're rejoicing about. They're rejoicing over the fact that it is the Lord who has shown great mercy. So what does their joy stem from? It doesn't stem from the fact that she simply is to give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. It stems from the fact that God was good. And that just as these relatives understand, as James would later on say in James chapter 1, Every good and perfect gift comes from above. They're not driven. They're not, they're not tossed to and fro by what's taking place around them. They're simply looking to the one who is always constant, who always keeps his promises. Could we say the same about our own lives? That what we find joy in is not simply our circumstances, but instead in a good and faithful God. It is very easy as Western Christians to be comfortable because there's no doubt we do live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. We find ourselves being free to worship without much persecution. We have the opportunity to pursue joy and happiness, right? We can work where we want. We can build homes. We can marry who we want. I mean, this is a good thing, but is that what our joy is rooted in? The answer is no. It is amazing to me to see people on the other side of the world, especially in third world countries, who are running churches and preaching the gospel, and they are 100% satisfied. And it's not because of a particular person in the office. It's not because they have a huge four-bedroom, three-bath house in a gated community. They could be living in a mud hut, completely satisfied. Why? Because they know where their joy should be found in. It's not in these things. Instead, it's in God. I mean, if anyone needs to hear that, it's me. Constant trying to, to fill some sort of void for happiness, wanting more things, wanting more comforts. I always say to my wife, especially after, uh, this has been an interesting few months in our nation, and we get a stimulus payment, and we get a tax refund, and as we get all this money coming into our bank account, rather than be thankful for it, I say to my wife, get ready, something bad's about to happen. It seems like every time we come into a large chunk of change, something is about to happen. Like the floor is about to just completely give way. And so I get all excited at one point because I'm like, okay, well, now I can use this money and I can get that lift and those big tires on my truck. Like I've been wanting this so bad. And the transmission goes out. Or an air conditioning unit goes out. Or the roof needs to be replaced. Or a kid gets sick and you've got to pay that emergency room bill. And I'm sitting there just frustrated going, are you serious? Every time we get this cash, it has to go to this. And yet my faithful wife will look and say, 
why can't you just be thankful that God gave us the money to pay for those things? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It's not based on your circumstances. That's where our joy is to be rooted in. Not in things, not in outcomes, but instead in God. Notice with me next, though, with verses 59 through 60, you see this faith displayed when it comes to joy, but there's also faith displayed in the midst of confusion. In verse 59, it says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Now, with verse 59, it's very simple. Of course, we know Old Testament law required that a newborn son would have to, on the eighth day, be circumcised. This is how you're admitted into the covenant family for the people of Israel. But there is no law that requires the child to be named after the father. This apparently is some sort of tradition that has been picked up. And really, I'm convinced it's with good intention. They're wanting to name this child after their father. I mean, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And has the Lord remembered them? Yes. And they're saying, listen, we want this legacy to live on, and we want this kid to just know who he is and the fact that the Lord remembered his mom and dad because he's probably not going to have that many years with his parents. They're much older, so let's name him Zechariah. And notice here the just unwavering faith from Elizabeth that she says, no, he will be called John. Listen, the English doesn't do this justice. The Greek here is an emphatic, like just shout, absolutely not. His name will be called John. And in verse 61, an argument begins. And they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. No one in your family is named John. Why would you call him John? Is there some sort of distant cousin that made an impact? Like, what's going on? Why would you call him John? And she says, I'm telling you, that's what his name has to be. And thinking about first century culture, the fact that women do not have much influence, they simply look and go, well, you're just a woman. What do you know? Let's go to Zechariah. And they go to Zechariah, and they begin making hand gestures. So this is also why we believe that he is deaf. They could have just spoke to him, but they're making hand gestures. Baby, you, Zechariah, like trying somehow to communicate, this is what your son's name should be. And yet notice, in verse 63, it says he asked for a writing tablet, and he writes with great confidence. His name is John. Not, we're going to call him John, but instead, his name is John. That is, his name is what God has declared it to be. Think of the unwavering faith of this man here. And we find ourselves, it's safe to say, living in a time, living in a culture that has called wicked good and good wicked. Is that safe to say? We are living in a time right now where the culture questions everything, especially Christianity. And to the world, it is an insult to ever suggest that at our core being that we are not good, instead we're sinful. That's an insult to the world. It is an insult to the world to suggest that someone else is the solution to that problem. And it is an even bigger insult to suggest that the one who actually solves it for us is a first century Middle Eastern Jew who never spoke English and yet through his death on a bloody cross, we can have our sins forgiven from a holy God. 
It's an insult. Not only is it an insult, it is an absurdity to suggest that not only did he die on this cross, but that three days later he rose from the dead. And yet this is our gospel. And yet this is the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 23, Jews seek signs and Gentiles seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's our gospel. A stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. Listen to me. Befriending the world and watering down the gospel is not an expression of love or humility. It is an expression of unfaithfulness to God. And may we as a church be a people who stand firm upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if it means that all of the freedoms we've been able to enjoy for the past 300 years as a nation may come to an end at any moment. And that even if that means we be arrested or we lose our lives, we stay faithful. We are unwavering in our faith. Why? Because God is unwavering in his faith. God is unwavering in his love towards us. When I was graduating high school, and I want to be very careful of saying this because I'm not wanting to puff up myself, but when I was getting ready to graduate, I had a very high GPA, and I had the opportunity to receive a large amount of scholarships to the point that I actually had more money given to me than I even needed for school. And I remember during this period, beginning to pursue this call of ministry on my life, and I remember very close family members looking at me and saying, you're a fool. You have the grades, you have the opportunity to do anything you want, to make as much money as you want, you have the opportunity to have status in this world, and you're gonna throw it away for ministry? You could do anything. And I remember graduating from college and going on to my graduate studies in seminary and someone that I love so much in my family says to me, you realize you could have been a medical doctor by now? You see what your friends are doing? You see the experience they and their family are making with one another and you're pursuing this? Almost ashamed. What causes someone to do this? What causes a family to sell all of their possessions and to leave this country for another country where they're called to learn a completely different language and they may even find themselves isolated, not for the purpose of actually just traveling the world and seeing things, but instead for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. What causes someone to do that? Listen to me, here's what causes someone to do it. Here's why people do this every single day. Because the calling of God is greater than any call from the world. It is greater than any call from the world. And that's not just for people pursuing ministry. That is for every single Christian in here who has been called by the gracious blood and name of Jesus Christ. Your call in this life is to deny yourself and take up your cross. Even if that means losing your friends, even if that means losing status, even if that means losing your 401k, that you keep pursuing Christ and you die to yourself. We must be unwavering in our faith just as Zechariah was. The Bible tells us in verse 64 that immediately as he does this, 
that he writes his name will be John. His mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he spoke. And notice what he says. He doesn't go, well, that was a rough nine months. He doesn't say, I got a lot of things I want to get off of my chest, so let's go ahead and start first with Elizabeth. Instead, what does the Bible say he does? The moment that his tongue is loosed, he blesses God. Like He is just faithful, and he begins to just bring forth this proclamation of how wonderful, how majestic God is. And the Bible tells us in verse 65 that fear comes over everyone. I mean, this is a miracle from God. This is an instantaneous miracle. This is not some sort of prosperity preacher going, you've been healed, now go home in a couple weeks. I promise you'll fully be healed. No, no, no. This is 100% healed. He's speaking, he's hearing, and the people are just blown away. Asking the question, what is this child gonna be? If this is how this man is. May we be a people where even when we're unwavering in a world that is insulted by the gospel, that the more they see us pursuing Christ and casting away all of the riches and the things that the world is convinced will make them happy, may we be a people where when the people see this, they go, as insulting as it is, I want to know more about it. I want to know what causes this person to do this because it is without question they're different. I think of my dad, who's the owner of a contracting company, that the employees will say there's something different about this company and the way in which he runs his business. This is a man who fears the Lord. We're called to be the same way. Whether you're a minister or a stay-at-home mom or an electrician or a salesman, or a student, whatever it may be, we are called to live our lives in such a way that people talk. And people say there's something different. There's faith that is displayed here in verses 57 through 66, but I want us to notice next and lastly that there's also faith described. The question that can often be asked is, okay, I get what it means to be different, I get what it means to display faith, but what's the foundation for my faith? Like what causes me to pursue Christ? Like why should I do this? If I was to go silent for nine months, what would cause me to immediately begin giving praise to God the moment that my mouth was opened? Well, we see it here in verses 67 through 80. And it's really based upon the question that is asked in verse 66. The people are asking, what will this child be? The hand of the Lord is on him. What's going to happen? And with verse 67, the Bible tells us that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins to prophesy, meaning he is preaching revelation from God, and he starts out with a blessing. Notice it's 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He doesn't even talk about his son. He goes, I know that it's significant that this kid is going to be born and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, but let me talk about the one who's much greater than him. Blessed be the God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Let me talk about the one who is going to purchase us from the bondage that we find ourselves in that is much greater than simply the Roman Empire. This is the Lord who has visited us and he has raised up a horn of salvation. This horn here that he's speaking of is not an instrument. It is the horns of a giant steer. You ever ever seen one of those big old cows that have the huge horns? 
And maybe they're at the zoo and they're just hitting the fence with it and you can just see the power that is in this giant steer. He says, this Messiah who is going to be raised up as God is visiting his people is going to be not simply some meager little baby in a manger. He's going to be a warrior and he is going to tear up some enemies. He's going to free them from the grip of not only a Roman empire, but of an enemy that is much greater than any physical entity itself. He is the horn of salvation, and he's been raised up in the house of his servant, David. Why bring up David? See, here's what Zechariah is doing. Think about it. Nine months he's had. Of course, he, I'm sure he has just immersed himself in the word. And he begins to articulate biblical theology. Because what he is ultimately saying here in verse 69 is that the one who is coming is a fulfillment of what was promised hundreds of years before to King David. You probably remember this. About a year and a half ago, Pastor Mike went through 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 7, as David is wanting to build a temple for the Lord, God says, that's really cute, but let me let you know what I'm going to build for you. I'm not worried about a temple. I'm going to build for you a dynasty. And the one who will come from your offspring will reign not just for 30 or 40 years, he will reign forever. He will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. He will be God himself. And Zechariah says, today this is being fulfilled in your midst. He's saying God has been faithful by keeping the Davidic covenant. And not only is he faithful in keeping the Davidic covenant, he is faithful in keeping the Abrahamic covenant. Notice this, verse 72, he comes to show the mercy that's promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. He's saying God has been active, not just during the time of David, but throughout all redemptive history. I told Pastor Mike this past week, I said, I feel like every time I preach, especially being the discipleship guy who's teaching biblical theology and systematic theology, somehow the sermons always go back to that. And yet here we are again, and think about redemptive history. Think about Genesis 3.15. How many times have I talked about this? Genesis 3.15, God says to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send one from your line to crush the head of the serpent. I'm going to send one from your line to crush the reign of sin and death. And when you get to Genesis 12, you discover that that line is going to come through Abraham. And it's going to come through this nation of Israel. And Abraham hears this, and the Bible tells us he believes. He doesn't question like Zechariah did. He believes, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. Now think about this. Zechariah says the one who's coming has fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. And by doing some, we ourselves will be delivered from our enemies and we will be able to serve God freely without fear in holiness and righteousness. He says, just as Abraham believed, so too will you through Christ believe. And you will be freed not just from this Roman empire, but you will be free from the bondage of sin to pursue Christ with all your heart, to, to be a holy people, to be conformed into the image of Christ. That is why Zechariah can display faithfulness, because God is always faithful. 
And with verse 76, he finally comes around to talking about his kid. He picks up this little eight-day-old boy by the name of John. And as he holds him in his arms, he says to John, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. It says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He says, this is gonna be your job. You wanna know who my kid is? It is the one who will point to someone who is so much better and greater than he is. Isn't that what we're called to do as well? That every one of us, whether you're a minister of the gospel or again, whether you're an electrician, a plumber, air traffic controller, a business owner, a retiree, that in every aspect of your life, God has called you there for a purpose and the primary purpose is to point people to something greater than you. It is to point people to the greatness that is Christ. It is to point people to the gospel that allows people who are sitting in darkness to receive light and to have that shadow of death taken off of them, to walk in newness of life. And it can only be accomplished by Jesus Christ. You know, John Piper, when giving this message, had said if he could have a canvas painted, he would have one of a giant mountain and it would look almost as if the storm is finally leaving this area and the sun is beginning to come out. And on the top of the mountain, there's this great giant steer. And as the steer is on top of the mountain with the horns bulging out of his head, what is pierced on one of the horns of the steer is a great lion. And it's such a picture of the gospel because the great warrior that is Christ came to destroy the work of the lion who prowls this earth looking for someone to devour. And through faith in this Messiah, we can have life and be freed from such a terrible state to now freely pursue Christ. Does that not excite you? Apparently it doesn't. Your wood's wet. God, this, this is the gospel. This is incredible. And it's my prayer that we as a church would live this out. That we as a church would see the goodness and grace that is Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this morning, you can persevere through anything that takes place because of the God who is always faithful in your life. You can take courage in the midst of a very wavering generation and stand firm upon that which is unwavering, which is the word of God. But if you're an unbeliever this morning, let me just say this gospel can be true for you. Right now, if you're an unbeliever, you're dead in your sin. You are blinded by that which you most desire and what you most desire is yourselves. It's to please yourselves. But the good news of the gospel is, is that God wasn't satisfied in keeping you there. God sends his son as this warrior, as this great prophet, priest, and king who has fulfilled all of these covenants from redemptive history and gives his life on a cross so that you may be forgiven and you may have life in his name.
Do not put off salvation. Find yourself before this holy God who is offering you his son and allow the shadow of death to be taken off of your side. It's no coincidence that God wanted his servant, John, to be called just that. Zechariah meant the Lord remembers, but John's name meant the Lord is gracious. And boy, is he ever. Has he been gracious to you? Absolutely. So may we, as a people, live gracious lives, preaching that grace, and may we be faithful no matter what comes our way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand amazed at the cross of Christ. We stand amazed at the opportunity that you have given us to live lives that are not simply about ourselves, but are about pleasing and honoring you. This morning, I pray that we would be a church who sees the importance of being unwavering in our faith, who finds joy not in circumstances, but instead joy in the only thing that is constant, which is Jesus Christ. Father, it is my prayer that we would be a people who would not befriend the world in such a way that we would water down the gospel. But Father, the most loving thing that we could do is that we would share the truth of the gospel with them and plead for sinners to repent. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have freed us not just from some sort of national enemy, but you have freed us from a great, powerful enemy, which is Satan himself. And that because you have freed us, we are able to freely pursue you and to live a life in holiness and righteousness before you. And Father, may we do just that. Thank you for our church. Thank you for this gospel. And may we always bring honor and glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, the altar is open. If you'd like to come and pray, if you'd like to come and hear more about this gospel, if you want to join the church, whatever it may be, if you would come, please make sure that you do business with the Lord.